Hey there, No Labels, No Limits podcast listeners. Today, I'm really excited to introduce to you Karen Walker. Karen is the president of One Team Incorporated, and that's a consulting firm that focuses on helping senior leaders to create internal strategies that support their organization's external growth. So whether you're in the for-profit industry, a small startup, nonprofit, a big Fortune 500 um, company, all of Karen's work will apply to you. She has just released a book called No Dumbing Down, a a no-nonsense guide for CEOs on organizational growth. And I'm very excited to um, have Karen share with us some of the work that went into creating that and to learn from her. So Karen, with that as a brief introduction, would you have other things you'd like our listeners to know about you before we dive in? No, oh, thanks for that opportunity. So I've not only released a book, but apparently one with a tongue-twisty title. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah, I think the other things I would I would share with your with your guests and sort of to ground our uh, conversation together. You know, I, I came to this work after a, a history of working at a, a company that was the fastest growing in American business history at the time which was Compact Computer. And I started there when the company hadn't shipped any products yet, hadn't generated any revenue. Uh, and I was employee 104, which sounds sort of large, but for the scale of what we were doing was not. Um, and I left there 14 years later um, when we were about $15 billion and about 17,000 employees. And just being part of that tremendous growth and the senior team that helped create all that value it's an amazing experience for me personally, but that really is what my work is grounded in, is how to help grow organizations in a way that uh, keeps them both on a fast growth pace, but also um, has them continue to be both a good place to work uh, and providing good value um, out of the marketplace. When you are in a company, and I remember Compact, as I say, back in the day, right? Back in the day when it was the big show right? Compact, it was what people were looking at. And I just can imagine from that place of number 104 employee to where it grew to the multi-billion dollar value. It's like, you must have seen a lot and learned a lot about what works and doesn't work in growth. Exactly. Yes. Um, And, you know, growth covers a lot of sins. I'll say that. Uh, because you don't have to be quite as careful around the margins um, because you just have this growth to keep fueling things. Um, and But you definitely can see things that work and don't work, and I did. Um, and then subsequently, in my last two decades of working with um, C-level uh, executives and organizations, I've been had an opportunity to apply uh, some of what I learned and help them apply in their organizations. Um, and so I'm, I'm pretty clear about um, what it takes to support growth at this point. So let me ask you just to to share a little bit more about the typical, I know typical is a loaded word, but Mm -hmm. um, the typical person who will reach out to you for your coaching or consulting services, what they're Mm -hmm. after, like what stage they're in in development, what's prompted them to reach out? Yeah, great. Well, typical is a bit of a loaded word. Um, I'll give you um, sort of the two, a couple of outlier cases, and then we'll work back towards the mean. Um, So I've worked with uh, like the CIO of a Fortune 50 company uh, who was making uh, change in his organization. So this is a company that's been around for 100 years, and uh, but with the technology portion of the organization. So you're thinking a little more up to speed. Uh, but this this group had been through a lot of failed change over the last couple of years. And so he was trying to make uh, a change that would stick in the organization. And so 
I got a call uh, to help make the change and to help drive that process using whole systems uh, methodologies, which was terrific. And he was a great guy. And we were able um, to, to create the conditions for the change the company and he both needed. So I go from that to, uh, you know, I'm currently coaching a first-time female CEO in the tech industry who just got her Series A funding. And uh, it's so much fun for me because she's like uh, so eager and wants so much to, you know, to do a good job with this company that was her dream. Uh, and um, it's just a different set of problems, but still you know, things that need to be solved. My more typical clients are sort of in the mid-range of that. But um, people tend to call me either uh, because they've worked with me before, right? So I always take that as a, as a good sign. But uh, typically uh, CEOs who are in fast growth companies uh, who know that they need support to to help the internal portions of their company match or um, be able to support the external sales. And um, I say that because I think sometimes senior leaders in organizations think about maybe incorrectly what it what it takes to grow a company because it's not just sales. Absolutely, sales are important. We have to have a great product market fit. But when that outstrips the ability of the rest of your organization to support it, you begin to fail on the promise that you've made to your customers because you can't deliver. I think in some ways you begin to fail your employees because you can't deliver. And people know when things get out of sync, right? So so really helping uh, create and maintain alignment uh, between the different parts of the organization. Um, So I'll also get called when someone's gone into a new position you know, sort of to help with that transition. I do a lot of work in the mergers and acquisition space uh, to make sure, uh, A, um, not so much that there will be a cultural fit because you can make almost anything work, but so that you're aware of what those cultural issues are uh, and also to make the uh, the integration uh, go as well as possible so that you can really deliver on the promise of the integration and the value that you were trying to acquire. I find this this is really the um, part that appeals to me for the work that I do, especially with nonprofits, but also in my own business world and my own business life, right? I've experienced those places where either I've been focused at the wrong end of something and then you <laughs> feel it on the back end. And sometimes there are relationships that just go by the wayside or I know that I haven't been the leader I could be or others as well. So can you walk us through kind of the book, the premise of the book, how you came to write the book? Yeah. Uh, well, let's start with how I came to write the book. Um, I, I never thought I would write a book. I just, uh, I didn't have a, a, like this overwhelming urge to write a book. Uh, and I, I now know it really takes that in order to do it successfully. I tell people it was a labor of love with an emphasis on the word labor, uh, but I, I'm happy with what came out at the other end. I wrote the book so that I could reach a large, larger audience. Um, I uh, love my clients and I um, have a good, goodly number of them, uh, but I, it's, there are only so many people that I can work with one-on-one. And uh, I thought by, by using the book as a vehicle, I could reach more people and sort of share the, the foundational ideas. Uh, this is more of a primer, really, for CEOs who want to either grow their organizations or, or be successful in the growth that they're having now. The book is aimed at senior leaders. sort of for senior leaders only, which doesn't mean that other people shouldn't or wouldn't get value from the book. Uh, I think it's very important to know what senior leaders are involved in and interested in and expect from you, no matter where you are. But for for a senior leader, 
as we said earlier, you can you can sort of misunderstand what it takes to support growth. And the the ideas in this book have to do with making sure first that you don't allow dumbing down in your organization, and we can talk more about that in a bit if you want. Secondly, that you're able to to be agile enough in the systems in your organization. We think about companies growing from sort of startup to grown up and thinking about that as a one-way street, but it's really a continuum. And uh, I, I believe in my experience shows that you need to be able to pick the place on that continuum that's right for the situation that you're in, not the age of your company. Because old companies, ones that have been around for a while, tend to get stuck and bound in process, right? Uh, whereas a startup... Uh, someone who's a, a young company tends to not quite have enough process. So everything is reactive. Um, so really figuring out for the situation you're in, where on that continuum do you need to be? Compact, for example, started as a, the idea was that it was a big company in the formative stages. So we had a lot of process. But we were very careful not to let that get in our way. If a situation demanded something else, to be agile and flexible enough to go with that. Uh, there are several other um, uh, concepts in the book. Um, one of which I'll just mention briefly is sort of creating time to think. Uh, that as a senior leader, you, you need to learn to do what I call levitating, which is really to get, get above it all and see the big picture and think about it and to know that no one else is going to make time for you to do that. You have to do that yourself. And the most successful executives do it. We get too bound up in this 365, 24-hour, seven-day-a-week capability that we have to work now. And we, and we overdo dealing with the urgent in the short term. And it takes more than an annual retreat uh, in order to really uh, think in the way that we need to think about our businesses and our careers. So what does it take to have sufficient time to reflect and think? If it's more than an annual retreat, is it ongoing, weekly, monthly? What Again, recognizing it may be different for different leaders or different industries. But on average, since you used the outlier and the mean, I'm thinking you're a math <laughs> kind of gal. So on average, what typically that's a, that's works. how I got that's how I got into engineering was good at math and science, right? That's excellent. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the the first thing is to take responsibility and accountability yourself for this. As I said, no one will ever put this on your calendar uh, in a in a meaningful way beyond perhaps the annual retreat. Um, and so to, to figure out for yourself, um, how, how do you apply the discipline in your life to this? And you're not going not gonna to do it if you don't think it's important. Like anything else, we have too many priorities. And so if you don't understand in your core that thinking is important uh, and that really looking at the big picture is important, you're not going to do it. So um, I really recommend um, getting in a rhythm around this so that you put time, dedicated time on your calendar. And you hold yourself accountable for taking that time to think. Now, for some people, you know, that's like a day a month. For other people, it's a half a day a week, right? For other people, it is, hey, I'm going to book time, you know, with my, with my family to go away for five days. And, you know, the last one of those, I'm committed to sort of, sort of jotting down all the ideas I had while I was gone. But just getting in a rhythm and paying attention. And, and hey, if you schedule yourself, you know, a half a day a week, every other week to, to take time to think and look at the big picture. Occasionally things are going to get scheduled on top of that. That's going to happen. But if you only get four of those five times that you scheduled, you still got four of them. Uh, and so I think the 
one thing is to get it scheduled. The other is to pay attention and do the work. And then the third is really to reflect back on how valuable was that? What did I get from it? So that you're reinforcing um, the good work that came out of not doing, um, because we we don't need to be doing all the time. That's not what senior level leaders are paid for. They're paid to think. Uh, We're not just putting, you know, putting widgets together. I recently was listening to someone speak on, he was talking about rethinking his um, assumptions, right? Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that he said, I'm, I'm going to actually have to come back on things I thought were true mm-hmm. and say that they're not true. My value isn't how much I can produce and it's not how efficiently I can produce right. it. It is how much I can help other people grow and create and produce. And I was thinking about that and I'm going both on a theoretical level, right? I'm going, yeah, it Mm -hmm. sounds good. But honestly, it just hit me at the core. I'm thinking that's absolutely right. And so part of it, I mean, for me, it jogged me to say, okay, that time with yourself, non-violet. And so when people say, are you available? I I look at my calendar, I'm going, I have an appointment. We'll have to reschedule. Yeah, you have to to value it. And without that aha moment, it's hard to do. Those are Um, helpful. But you definitely, uh, you know, one of the things that happens when you're thinking and not doing is that you're developing your staff because people will step into the void that you leave. And if you don't leave a void, there's no time or place for them to develop. Uh, So that's definitely a byproduct. The other thing you have to do beyond creating time for yourself is this is the what are you not going to do, right? Always the good question to ask. And that is you have to learn to say no to shiny new objects, uh, and I, I work with a lot of successful people, and I will put myself in this category of attraction to shiny new objects. And uh, you have to learn to say no, that it is not highest and best use of your time uh, just because some, because you have a great curiosity uh, to follow every shiny new object that comes down the path. You need, to, you need to figure out for yourself which of these seem to be worthwhile. Where am I going to place my bets in terms of my, my most important resource, which is my time? Uh, and what is it that I'm going to either let someone else look at or we're not going to explore? I find also that when that occurs, it also brings up, and I'm going to just speak personally, not apply it to everybody, but I know from what people have told me, it applies beyond myself. And when you start handing stuff off like that and say, well, they can step in, you also have to say, things may not be exactly like I would have had them, but they're going to get done. And after you live through that discomfort a couple of times, you're thinking, actually, some of them got better, done better than I could have done them. Yeah, yeah. And now there's some systems. Could you talk about the dumbing down aspect? You you kind of um, brought that up, and I'm very curious about yeah, that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so dumbing down is, um, is sort of what happens, I think, about teamwork as usual. And uh, we've all experienced this, right? So we're working in an organization. We're sort of passionate about the work that we're doing. Certainly when we come in the door, we are. Then, you know, there's a, there's a company meeting and the CEO or someone will say, hey, you know, we're putting together, we're going to start working as teams because we know the teams are good and we can get more from working together and diversity is good and all these things. And we get hats and we get t-shirts and we get our hopes raised, right? We raise our hopes about, hey, maybe things are going to be different now than they have been. And then, um, and then we go back and maybe for a while things are a little different, but then we revert back to the behaviors that we, we had before, the group behaviors, right? And one of the things we know is that teams can only work at the, at the level of the lowest performing member of the team, right? You see this in sports. You certainly see it in organizations. It's just more visible in sports, more 
more clear. Uh, but it happens in organizations too. And so what happens is the, the A players in your organization will feel like they have to dumb down to the slowest level performing member of the team. And that is not a recipe for success in your organization. For one, your A players will leave if they're not feeling like they're able to grow and develop and contribute. And secondly, you're not getting the performance out of your teams that you need to have. And so to, to, to really, as a, as a leader in an organization, to not allow that to happen, to instill in your teams both how they need to work together, how they need to deal with conflict with each other. That's one of the things that often causes dumbing down is we have unresolved conflict. We want to be too nice to each other or there's an issue that we don't want to deal with. Um, Or maybe we just have a mismatch of skills. Um, But for a senior leader to really pay attention to that and to not let it happen in an organization. Um, Because I think it's um, certainly it's insidious, sort of like a corporate virus. Once it gets started, then it becomes the norm. You don't expect your your team meetings and your teamwork to really produce all they can. I just remember from my days at Compaq when there was sort of more to do than anyone could do. Um, and we were all stretching and growing because there were not enough people to get things done. And you could see that every action and inaction that you took had an impact. And uh, sometimes in these grown-up companies at that, that end of the spectrum, uh, you can't see the results of your actions. And so at first you think, oh, it just doesn't matter as much. And eventually, um, I think it will, it will drive high performers out of organizations. When you talk about um, not letting that happen, having that kind of dumbing down of a team, what are some of the signs that that is happening? So that if I'm leading or someone else is leading, you're going, oh, that's a warning sign that's yeah. going south. It's great. So one of the things I do with the teams I work with is I'll ask them to talk to me about their team experiences. Uh, and when I ask people, tell me about sort of the, the, the worst team you were ever on. I've never had anyone say I wasn't on a bad team to start. But then I get a list and I could tell you right now what 90% of that list is going to look like. We know what a bad team is, right? And it's, it's these kinds of things um, like decision making, right? We, we're unable to make decisions in the in the best way. They're like there are many different ways to make decisions. They don't always have to be by consensus. They don't always have to be by expert, right? But to pick the right method for the situation you're in, um, you get misaligned goals and priorities, right? So I show up at a team meeting and I've got I'm supposed to be doing X, and you show up, but you're really supposed to be doing Y, and yet somehow we're supposed to come together and take these mismatched priorities but we don't have a language or a way to resolve that issue. No consequence for poor performance. So if there's somebody on the team who is not doing what it is they said they were going to do, either they're not um, capable or they're just not, uh, for whatever reason, maybe they're pulled off onto their projects, or, but they're not performing, there's no consequence, right? So that can really lead to dumbing down. Sometimes people will come in the door and they just have a lot of ego or they're very defensive about their work. These are often sort of sort of star individual contributors that don't know how to work well or play well with others. Uh, and so having them have their own aha moment about why they can accomplish more when they're able to work with the team than they could on their own and why that's important, that'll help um, stave off dumbing down. And uh, sometimes it's something as simple as leadership. Sometimes you just have weak leadership that doesn't, good, doesn't do a good job of chartering the team so that the team is not clear about its purpose uh, and how to get its problem solved. When you think about the need to be agile, the, mm-hmm. and then the whole complex about 
needing also for teams to be functioning and working well. You talked about the inability to handle unexpected events. So I'm wondering where that intersection across those things are, because the agility falls in there and the team, all of that to me is connected. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I have a concept I call playing bumper cars. Uh, because if you think about bumper cars, right, you get in, you're not quite sure where they're going to go and you sort of bounce off of each other. And in, in some ways, that's what happens in organizations. There is no steady state, right? Things are changing and moving all the time. And particularly in high growth organizations, this is true. And so I think it's important for an organization to be successful to think about, yes, you want to you want to go from point A to point B. You should always set your vision and have a place where you're headed, but know that it's not a straight line. It will not happen in a straight line. It never does. Um, So to set sort of some guardrails for yourself, like we would have in bumper cars, um, so that when events occur that move you off your straight line, which we know they will, um, if they bump you up, right? Yeah, you know where that guardrail is, and maybe if it's, if you're being bumped up, maybe that's the place where it's it's impossible for your internal. Uh, functions to keep pace with what's happening externally, right? So that's a that's like a warning signal for you. I know at this place, I must reset my strategy or I must change my operating plan to deal with what's really going on in the world. And conversely, if a bumper car comes along and it knocks you below your what you expected your trajectory to be, know where that bottom guardrail is so that you can take action uh, appropriately and uh, quickly when you hit it. That takes some courage. Yes, yeah. it yeah. does. To be it able to good. say, we had this great plan. Guess what? Life's different and we have That's to right. adjust. That's right. And the longer you wait to say that, of course, the more different things could be. So like the first uh, first CFO I ever worked with said uh, one of his tenets of success, and I love this, he says, bring me your problems when they're small. And of course, this is true, right? We wait and we think our bosses are so busy, we don't want to bother them. And so we keep our small problems to ourselves and we only take the big problems. And uh, the CFO said, hey, if you remember when they're small, we'll deal with them. If you wait until they're big, then it's a problem. You feel bad. We feel bad. Things are going south. Just bring them up when they're small. That's really good advice. Yeah. Really great advice. Um, I do want to ask you to talk a little bit. You brought up accountability at a mm-hmm. team level and then organizationally. Before we went live, you really talked about one of the things you love best is seeing results when you yes. help people. So mm-hmm. for me, those two words kind of link up. It's like if I'm accountable, I'm accountable to a result or to a commitment. So when you work with folks, do you help them think through their self-accountability as well as team accountability? And what does that look like? Yeah, so it is. It is core. It is one of my core tenets in life is this accountability because we all have good intentions, right? What we really want is for our behaviors to be aligned with our intentions, and despite good intentions, that will not be the case without a good accountability process. Um, I, um, I, I I put different processes in place for different companies, sort of depending on where they are and who's at the company. Some people come by this naturally and other people need a little more process around them. Uh, but but definitely having a rhythm of accountability. So and, and it's transparent. So people know what they're accountable for, what success looks like, and when those accountability checkpoints will come in. We talked earlier about delegation a little bit. And I think that's one of the ways of delegating properly uh, is not just to give someone something and see what they do with it, but to give someone something uh, 
make sure that you're clear about what you want the end result to look like, but also when do you need checkpoints, right? So check in with me if this is a month-long project. Check in with me in a week and let's see where you are. Check in with me in two weeks. Let's see where you are so that you, you have those sort of midpoint or interim accountability checkpoints. Um, the other thing I'd say about accountability is I think this concept of holding yourself accountable is very powerful. And when you combine that with the concept of other people holding you accountable, it is even more powerful. It's like a multiplier, right? So I see people who um, um, would only um, hold themselves accountable but not um, expect the group to hold them accountable, right? So it's like all on their shoulders. Um, and I'd say that's pretty fragile because you can get blown off course for any number of reasons. On the other hand, if the group is holding you accountable, but you don't have any personal accountability, then you're only going to do something because you're afraid, right? You'll be fearful of letting the group down. But when you, when you combine those things, then you can really flourish because you have both self-accountability and other accountability, and those will just support each other in making sure that you get the thing done. When you were talking about that accountability and handing and asking people to check in, are there instances where you actually, either as a leader or would coach a leader to say, where they would ask the staff person or team member they're working with to set the accountability metrics for themselves and to hold themselves to that? Absolutely. I, I mean, I, this, I'll be preaching to the choir here with you to say that if the, if the person is not bought into their accountability measures, if they don't believe that they can reach them, um, then chances of getting them are, are pretty slim. Um, and um, I've, I definitely know that, that the vast majority of people will set far higher goals for themselves than their managers will set for them. Um, and so ha- I, I'm a big believer in having the employee bring their measures and then having a conversation uh, to see if they're you know, appropriate or not. And it's very rare that you'd have to, have to raise one. Typically, you're, you're lowering or finding another way to make sure the thing gets done. I'm going to bring you back to one of my first questions. This is how my mind kind of, when you said bumper cars, I'm thinking, sometimes my mind does that as well. Something you said (laughs) will trigger me. But when you talked about companies when they're growing who could focus potentially too much on the sales and revenue and miss Mm -hmm. either delivering on their employee or their client promise, Mm -hmm. what where should they be focusing on what kinds of internal or what kinds of aspects of organization when they're trying to grow, should they be focusing on if it isn't an over-focus on revenue and sales? Yeah. So let me be clear again that you have to focus on sales, right? If you don't, it's no margin, no mission. So uh, regardless of what industry you're in, uh, there must be a focus there. My mission is to make sure that there's alignment internally and externally. And so uh, to for me to get the senior team together, to create those goals together, to talk about what the possible pitfalls are, to talk about what the strengths of each organization are, to talk about what everybody needs in order to get the the goals met for the year, Um, and then to continually check in with each other. And so that's sort of the plan. Um, And then you're out executing and then debriefing uh, what's really going on in the world. You know, where where are we getting ahead or behind of ourselves? What hires didn't get made that we were expecting or somebody left that we weren't expecting that left a hole in the organization? And how do we help each other in order to, to reach the goals that we've set and that are uh, critically important for us to reach? Uh, so I'm, I'm a proponent of not working. I'm not saying don't do well in your function. Absolutely, every function should do well. But it's not about maximizing 
the function. It's about optimizing for the whole. So make a distinction between the two of those because I can hear the language get um, kind of bantied about like we're, mm-hmm. we're optimizing, we're not maximizing or whatever I'm thinking. But really, what does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah. What's so. Yeah, so ma- so maximizing, we'll just use sales again because we were talking about that earlier, that maximizing would be make all the sales you can make, right? That's maximizing the sales function. Uh, and it's a really easy trap to get into because it's revenue. Uh, but then you think about the downstream effects of that. If you're making sales that you can't support, you're making sales into customers that need a, a long implementation process that your implementation team is not able to support. Um, if you are making sales that um, your development team doesn't have the doesn't have the product right that's required, so what you what you want to do is make sure that you're sort of working your potential, but but everybody is pulling sort of at the same pace. The the other thing that happens in terms of um, maximizing and optimizing is that when the team gets together and it sets common goals, those are goals for optimization right? It's not about me winning the marketing person of the year award, although that's really nice. If the results weren't delivered to the organization, right? That's what counts is the outcome uh, of the work that you're doing, not the work you're doing itself. I have um, several people I work with who are chief product officers. And uh, my, my favorite one, this guy turns in every meeting to the CEO and he says, because the CEO looks at him and he'll say, when am I going to have a product roadmap? Well, when are you going to update your product roadmap? And the, and the chief products officer looks right back at me and says, when are you going to give me a business case? What is your business strategy? And I will build you the products that will make that business strategy happen. But I'm not building technology for technology's sake because that never works. And you end up with you know, it's like chocolate ice cream when you know the, it turns out that your customers really wanted vanilla. Um, and so having alignment between those things is really the place we need to go. I love it. So I'm thinking about, you said you never set out to write a book that had never been on your big list of things I want to do before I'm done doing stuff. Go back to when Karen was like employee number 104, just hired, and think about all that you have learned in the intervening years. And if there was going to be a duplicate of Karen going into a similar phase company, what Mm. piece of advice might you give her? Yeah, that's a lot of thinking to do. <laughs> a lot of water, in the, water under that bridge. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that stood me in good stead was um, a, a self, uh, a sense of confidence and that it was okay to, it wasn't okay to fail, but it was okay to make uh, small mistakes and learn from them, right? Because there's this iterative loop of that. And so I think the sort of the one piece of advice that I would give is, is uh, both to, to trust yourself, right? to trust your ability to solve problems. And that's really who I am at my core as a problem solver and to learn to trust that ability to solve problems and to know that most of what comes my way I can solve, not always on my own, right? It's okay to ask for help, but to trust my ability to get the problem solved in one way or another. And I think the other piece of advice that I would give um, to anyone starting out or not is just to learn to think bigger. We don't think big enough. Somehow we're we're in these these boxes that we've created with, um, you had mentioned something earlier to me about limiting beliefs. And we don't, I mean, those are scary to me, limiting beliefs, because if it's, if it's a problem or an obstacle, I, I know it's there and I can, I can solve a way around it or know that it's immovable and find another way. 
Um, but if it's a limiting belief, I may not know. I probably don't know that I have it. And then I have a blind spot. And blind spots are the things that, that scare me most because if you don't, you don't know what you don't know. And so to, to find ways to continue to be curious and get challenged so that you will think bigger about what's possible for you and what's possible for the work that you're doing. That's a good challenge to all of us, to think bigger. And I just want to ask you a math question. By how much? 10x? 100x? 1x? How much bigger is bigger? Like, because I know for me, I'm going, you can think incremental. That's right. You can go, yeah, but if I was going to do it so much bigger, I'll, I'll strive harder. Yeah, there's an interesting book. I think the author's name is Grant Cardone, maybe, called 10x or 10 Exit. And, you know, what I like about what I liked about that book is if I set a goal for myself to grow by 15 percent, then, you know, if I don't hit the mark, then I'm going to grow by 10 percent. If I hit if I really stretch myself to think about growing by 10 X, that's possible because I know people who have done it. And if I fail to hit that mark, I've still grown by many times X rather than 10 percent. Right. Point something X. Uh, And so I, I like the I like the 10 X number. In part because I think if you if you think about a hundred x number, which I'm sure some people can do, for most of us a hundred x doesn't seem doable, but ten x does. Ten uh, x does because we know people have done it, and it isn't that much more. One of the best counsels I ever received from someone she ended up being a board member for me after mm-hmm. the fact, but I was running a small nonprofit at the time, yeah, and she was a board member of another organization. She says, we'd, we're going to have an opening. We'd like you to apply. Well, this other organization was statewide. I'm like a newbie in what I'm doing as far as I'm concerned in this field. I'd run my own businesses, but not in this. And I says, oh man, you've got like this budget is way bigger, more complex, more people, all the excuses, right? And she goes, Sarah, it's zeros. The only difference between what you're doing and what we're doing is zeros. Everything else is the same. That's and right. I cannot tell you what that did to me. I'm thinking, yeah. okay, it's just a zero. It's the same process, same things. It's just bigger. Exactly. So I think the 10X is, because that's the difference. It was 10X bigger. Mm-hmm. It wasn't yeah. that hard. Yeah. yeah, that's really well said. Yeah. I, some of the nonprofits I've worked with are certainly um, smaller than some of the for-profits that I work for. I've worked with a couple of large nonprofits, but primarily smaller ones. And and the, the processes are, should, are the same. The the people, the, the issues are the same. The technology needs are the same. It's often just a matter of scale. Uh, and the other thing is, I'd say for, for nonprofits, is we have to think about the, the shareholders, the stakeholders are different, right? Um, it, they're often more complex systems. Than they're not, it's not always as clear-cut uh, as it is in, a, in the for-profit world. And so you just have to spend more time thinking about and um, dealing with those um, those vast variety of stakeholders. Well, I still think your book will be a good asset for all the leaders out there because the concepts you've talked about are all the things that can trip us up. Thank you. So with that, um, any parting words that you would like to share? We were, we'll put a link out to all of your websites, your social media, and to your book, but any pearls of wisdom as we wrap the show for this week? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be I, I'm partial to always saying no dumbing down to people, right? So pay attention to no dumbing down is a is sort of a parting word. But I, I think one of the most important things that people can do and um, a takeaway that I would ask people to think about is, um, is really to think about how you're spending your time. And a lot of people get caught up, particularly when they're growing and their organizations are growing and doing things because they can do them. And uh, I would just remind people that just because you can doesn't mean you should. And uh, to really think about sort of highest and best use of your time. And, um, and oftentimes we have blind spots around what that is. Um, so getting some, getting some assistance um, from your peers or set up a personal board of advisors, find a mentor, find a coach, whatever it is. But to, to figure out what's the best use of my time uh, and, and spend your time there because that's where you'll really be able to see the difference, uh, which, of course, as we said, is important to me, being able to see the difference in the work that you do. Thank you so much, Karen. I've just so enjoyed um, your thought processes and what you shared with us. Thank you. You know, these the best podcasts are always things that are conversational, and uh, you certainly have a uh, knack for that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week's edition of the No Labels, No Limits podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. And if you did, we ask that you go over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. If you know someone who would enjoy this podcast, please be sure to share. And until next time, have a great week living a no labels, no limits, and no excuses life.